Hank O'Neill's longtime friend, Margaret Witten, who knew a thing or two about life, theater, baseball, and human nature, asks an important question in the foreword to O'Neill's baseball memoir, Sincerely Ty Cobb. She asks, what in Hank's longing letter to a baseball hero, out of the hundreds he must have received, made Cobb, the most demonically driven competitor, respond? For young Hank, in his early teens, when Ty Cobb replied to his fan-type letter, it may not have mattered why the baseball great took time to write back, though we'll find it did. It's that he did write back, more than once. And here's what Hank tells us. Something amazing happened. I came home from school on a cold day in mid-March and found a letter from Ty Cobb waiting for me. I had written to him after I'd received the note from him, apologizing for not having enclosed an envelope and probably addressing some of the points he made in his brief comments. In fact, I suspect I was trying to cover all the errors I'd committed in my first letter as thoroughly as possible. But whatever I'd done worked, and to my amazement, he'd taken the time to reply and not with a hurriedly scribbled note around the margins of the letter I'd sent him. This was a serious five-page response, in which he not only answered a couple of things I must have asked him, but also strenuously attacked a man named Gene Shore, whom he referred to as a creature, a lovely dated way to zing his tormentor. I had no idea then, or now, who this creature might be, and I didn't care. All that mattered was the five-page letter from a man who was possibly baseball's finest player and certainly its fiercest competitor. I didn't even pay attention to the two lines at the bottom saying he couldn't write to me anymore. He had taken the time to write something to someone he didn't know, someone he'd probably never know. This from the man who was supposed to be not only the best player, but one who was often reviled as the meanest, nastiest man to ever play the game, who'd hit his mother with a bat if it meant an extra base. Somehow, this didn't add up to me, even as a 14-year-old. The letter was important to me both in the classroom and on the ball field, I was a decent student, but my English teacher was always on my case about some deficiency. My book reports were sloppy, or I was reading the wrong book. After Ty Cobb's letter, it didn't matter to me if what I had written pleased my teacher or anyone else, but whether or not my words might generate some interest in the mind of some other reader. Miss Freshman English teacher might have her nouns and verbs under perfect control, but had anything she'd ever written managed to generate a five-page response from anyone like Ty Cobb? I didn't think so, and it was probably at this point I began to understand that perfect grammar and following all the rules didn't necessarily make a writer. It only makes a grammarian or maybe an English teacher. A few years later, my English teacher was Maureen Bora, and she let me get away with writing my senior paper about Dizzy Gillespie, and she didn't bat an eyelash. I may have learned more about writing than baseball from Ty Cobb, but that made no difference at the time. O'Neill's correspondence with Ty Cobb may have been more a life lesson than a baseball lesson. Tips on how to steal a base wouldn't matter, ultimately. But as Hank tells us, even then the whole thing didn't add up to the lad. 
And for some reason, he didn't let the contradiction go. Oh, maybe it faded in his multifaceted living of life. But finally, 50 years later, O'Neill came to terms with the Ty Cobb conundrum, and he put down, in letter form, his thoughts about the character of a man like Ty Cobb. And the mature Hank O'Neill was able to tell the truth based on the record, which is something Ty Cobb urges Hank to do at the start of his five-page response to the lad. Yes, he was likely the scoundrel people said he was, but in the wisdom O'Neill has developed over the years, he could write in that letter to Cobb 50 years late though it was, you were not only polite in answering my letter and signing the bits of memorabilia, but you invested three cents in the process. Perhaps the answer to your puzzling behavior may be as simple as what the saxophonist Zoot Sims once said to me about his sometime associate Stan Getz. When I asked what he thought about Getz, who was charming one moment and horrid the next, Sims replied, he's an interesting bunch of guys. There were probably many layers to your personality. Some were undoubtedly very unpleasant, but others may have been charming. Maybe I was lucky to have caught you on four or five good days and have the letters and memories to prove it, but the odds against just catching you on good days seems pretty slim. So, even though the title of Hank O'Neill's book is Sincerely Ty Cobb, a baseball memoir, it's not just a baseball book. Especially with Hank O'Neill, everything is somehow interconnected, and it all leads back to music, as he'll tell us. Hank O'Neill's career has included the worlds of government, education, music, especially jazz, photography and literature. He's a serious photographer who worked with the noted American photographer Bernice Abbott for nearly 20 years. But it's through music that we know him. O'Neill built two recording studios, produced over 200 jazz LPs and CDs, and formed two record companies, one of which is Chiaroscuro, which he and his partner Andrew Sordoni have donated to WVIA. We had a chance to talk baseball and much more during Hank O'Neill's most recent visit to the WVIA studios to sort through the voluminous Chiaroscuro archives and about the place of baseball in his very full life and why it might have been important. You see, there was a guy back in, I think, maybe in the 70s. His name was Don Honig, and he wrote a book that was called Baseball When the Grass Was Green. And that is kind of what this is about. You see, the, the picture of Ty Cobb on the front, which is a bubblegum card, if you have a shiny copy of that with, you know, perfectly formed corners and it's centered and it's printed nicely and it doesn't have any creases and it's in almost like new condition, I'll bet you that that probably on this auction where Mickey Mantle is going to cost $10 million, I'll bet this one is probably going to come in at forty or 50000 And the, the copy of the card that is on the front of my book is one that I owned. And when I was a kid in Syracuse, picking up newspapers in my wagon and taking them to the scrap place, and you would walk away with a dollar and 20 cents that you earned from selling scrap newspapers, a dollar and 20 cents would give me 12 dimes. And I could send that. I usually waited until I had three or four 
dollars. I could send that to a guy who lived in Tennessee. He's actually mentioned in the book. His name was Wirt Gammond. And I could buy these cards for 10 cents. And it was a time before grown-ups got in the way of kids collecting bubblegum cards. And it, it's sort of like when the grass was green. You would, you would get a few nickels together and you would go to the grocery store and buy a package of bubblegum with had five or six little cards in it and you would save them and you would try to make a complete set. Well, today people don't do that. People will go out and buy a complete set. They come in a box. There, there's no adventure. There's no, no fun to it. You just go out. It's just commerce. It's not play. It's not excitement. It's commerce, and that's all. And, I mean, I think it's wonderful if some guy has that perfect Mickey Mantle card and he's going to get $10 million and maybe he's going to help the local Little League. I don't know. I hope so, but probably not. And that's the difference. It's like what the American dream was in 1955 as opposed to what it is in 222. In in our case, it was having a washing machine in the basement, even if you had to have a ringer and stuff like that, or getting $75 together to buy a used refrigerator so you didn't have to have an icebox and put the milk out on the fire landing. And I mean, that's serious. We did that. And, uh, that, that's one of the differences, but it, it's just attitude and, you know, what works and, and what doesn't. And it was sort of scuffling kind of times back then, but everybody was, so you didn't notice. You show us lots of the big-time baseball players, the big league baseball players, but some of your dad's friends were a big influence. You see, this, this fella, Jim Busby, Jim Busby and a, a fella named Jim Nolan, this was at TCU. They were my father's buddies. My first baseball glove and first ball came from Jim Nolan. And so I was very lucky from that standpoint. I had a, a ball and a glove, and Jim Busby went on to become a major league baseball player. And Jim Nolan, I don't think, ever got any higher. I call it local heroes. Jim, uh, here's this is from a yearbook from TCU. So TCU had a double reason to publish this because they were all the way through it. There's pictures of them playing. There was my grandfather who, who would play baseball with me in the front yard. He could still throw the ball pretty hard. I mean, I thought he was just ancient, and he was maybe 15 years younger than I am now. <laughs> so... And what position did you play? I was a really raggedy pitcher, and that's why I had to stop. We, we were very lucky in that my high school team won a lot of games. And so there wasn't a lot for me to do as a freshman and a sophomore. Got to do a little bit as a junior, but then when I got to be a senior, I, I was about all that was left, and, and it was going to be wonderful. And I remember... As the season began, and this is all recounted in the book, it's, it's part of the story. The, you know, it becomes sort of a bittersweet kind of story. I got to be one of the starting pitchers. I was, you know, I was really cool. But what happened was at the beginning of the year, I was in good shape, but one of our guys got hurt and one of the guys got sick. And the bottom line became I pitched too many games in too short a time, and I was actually in the middle of a game 
and I threw the ball, and something went pop in my arm. <laughs> I literally, I, I couldn't even straighten it out. It hurt so bad, and I had hurt something badly, torn a muscle or done something. And for the rest of the year, I couldn't throw a curveball. I could only throw straight ahead or a bad knuckleball. And so for the rest of the year, I just got to be a, you know, sort of a hang-on relief pitcher and, and stuff like that. The other guys got well and got... And, and the, um, the, the story sort of comes full cycle in that when I got to Syracuse, I was running down to that baseball stadium and seeing all the players. And my next to the last game, my father, who was in school administration and the thing, had worked out a deal. By that time, the Syracuse Chiefs had left town. MacArthur Stadium was vacant. He had worked out a deal that all of the high school teams got to play one game in MacArthur Stadium. So I got to go into the stadium, and I got to pitch two innings or something in the place. And that wasn't the last one. I, I got to go in as a relief pitcher in the last game of the season that we had lost. We lost the championship. But I had to go in as a relief pitcher to pitch one inning or something. And I was really terrible. All I could do was throw a fastball and a knuckleball. And I remember that a storm was coming, and a, we were trying to get the inning over, and I I threw the ball to the, the guy who was the batter, and he happened to be the, the pitcher on the other team. And I threw a knuckleball, and the wind was blowing, and it was a really good one. And it was dancing all around. <laughs> and, it, and it hit the opposing pitcher in the middle of the back. He couldn't get away from it. <laughs> And I said, what a knucklehead you are. I mean, you're, you hit the opposing pitcher. And so they pulled me out of the game, and I didn't have to face him as a batter. <laughs> but that was my last game. I hit somebody throwing a knuckleball. And I never played another baseball game. I played softball, but I, my arm was shot. And I became a tennis player because you didn't use the same muscles, and the, the tennis worked, and that was fine. What was the Major League team Syracuse was the... They were part of the Philadelphia Phillies, and they had a, a handful of guys that did fairly well. Nobody that became a great, great big star, but Syracuse was an interesting town when, when we got there in 1953 in that it had a A baseball team, which was pretty good for a small town. I mean, they had about 225,000 people at the time, and a good university that was best known for being a football team, and they had a major league basketball team. The Syracuse Nationals became the Philadelphia franchise. So here was a minor league city, but with a major league team. You worked on the book in stages. How does it unfold? The first section of the book is just about the Syracuse Chiefs. I actually put in a picture of the brick wall when I didn't have anybody to pitch to. I would just pitch to the wall. And I had three or four baseballs, and I would throw them all as hard as I could, and then I'd go pick them up and throw them again. But here are all the Ty Cobb letters and thing from Dizzy Dean. Yeah, here's the first letter where he wrote around the edges of the one like he was trying to save paper or something. And writing in green. He always wrote in green ink. I don't know why. And of all the pictures in here, the only one I have left is this one, the one that he signed from his friend Ty Cobb. And then here's the picture of my grandfather with Ty Cobb on the team. That was in Life magazine. And here was the list. I, I call this section a three-cent stamp. 
It took a three-cent stamp to send off to the Hall of Fame, and the director of the Hall of Fame, a man named Sid Keener, sent me. Enclosed gives the list of addresses of the 26 living members of the Hall of Fame. We have not received the addresses of the six recent editions as yet. I remain very sincerely yours, Sid Keener. And they sent off a list of all the people, and I put a check on all the ones I had written to. And I hadn't, I didn't write to Bill Dickey. I don't know why. I hadn't written to or Tom Connolly, but I got most of them. And I had written down here, received, 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 received. All of these guys wrote back to a little kid, and I would send them an envelope with a stamp on it, even though it was just three cents, and, and that was that. Would you read your letter, your answer to Ty Cobb at the end? Sure, and, and I'll tell you something fun. What it is, my response I wrote in 2005, it says, and what I tried to do, I tried to get a computerized type font that looked like a typewriter. And I don't know how well I did it, but I'm sending it to his address in Menlo Park, California. Now, just to put it in perspective, this picture on the back of the book that we're looking at, it's Ty Cobb sliding into third base, allegedly spiking home run Baker. Oh, this one, this Ty Cobb bubblegum card, this is not a cigarette card. This was another one that I had. This one is even more expensive than the one on the front. This one is probably fifty or $60,000 in this current auction. But on this picture here, he sent it to me. It's dated 41555, so April 15th, 1955. And some while ago, it would have been about 2010 or 11, I had been selling my photographs via Heritage Auction. A friend of mine had started the photography department there, and she actually put my picture of Jackie Onassis on the front of their, their very first catalog. And somebody <laughs> who had more money than sense paid a lot of money for it at, at an auction in, in Dallas. And so I got to know the guys at Heritage who were all very interesting, nice people. A fellow named Ed Jaster was the, the head of the division that had collectibles like photographs and a photograph like this. And they found out about all my baseball stuff. And they were just getting interested in selling baseball memorabilia. And this picture of Ty Cobb that he sent me, which is not even an original photograph. It's a copy of a copy, but he happened to have signed it on that day and wrote an interesting letter to me about the fact that he didn't spike Home Run Baker. That was a bunch of stuff that was made up by newspaper guys. And, and it, I guess it might sell for a whole lot more today. But in nineteen ten dollars, this this little copy of a copy of a copy sold for fifteen thousand dollars, and I was just I couldn't believe it, and so it's sitting in somebody's collection somewhere, and it's not it's sitting in mine. Let's see, I said to Ty Cobb, at forty eight Spencer Lane, Atherton, Menlo Park, California, dear Mister Cobb, thanks so much for your wonderful letter and the terrific picture. I'm sorry it has taken me so long to reply, <laughs> but the very day your letter arrived, I made my high school baseball team the youngest and least experienced player on the squad. Once this happened, my life became a mess, and I was very busy trying to catch up for the two years I'd missed, and then as my life became more complicated, I didn't pay as strict attention 
to answering letters as perhaps I should have. Time passed more quickly than I could have ever imagined, and suddenly it's 50 years later. <laughs> and I sit here trying to figure out what I should say to you, and I can't help but wonder how things would have turned out if only I had thrown a ball as fast as the years passed. That's not a bad line. And I really, I haven't, I haven't even thought about this since I made it all that long ago. If only I had been a little better, just a little stronger, I might have actually, <laughs> this is very funny, I might have actually risen to the level of mediocrity. <laughs> Perhaps even good enough for a college team somewhere. Of course, I'll never know, but I suspect I'd have had enough sense to realize I only had a modest talent, and it was foolish to pursue a dream that required so much more talent than I ever had. Which is true. That's not, not bad stuff. Skipping ahead five or six paragraphs. I hope you don't find this offensive, but you want to know what I think, and this is the best I can come up with. He had asked me, this is, this is why in the letter, he had asked me to read an article in the Sporting News that he had written about some incident or something. And he actually told me how to get the Sporting News because I had somehow told him that I was, you know, just a kid and didn't have any money. And he had told me how I could get a copy for free. <laughs> now, Ty Cobb was a very well-to-do person. He had invested heavily in Coca-Cola and stuff like that. But I never went out and did this. But to bring it full cycle and to show how jazz music is the world's greatest equalizer, somewhere in this book I have the, the article from the Sporting News that he had written. And I had no difficulty in getting the permission to use that because at the time the publisher of the Sporting News was a man named Nick Niles, and it's all the music connection. It doesn't have anything to do with anything else, just the music. Nick Niles is a mean stride pianist who is living now in the Poconos. Yeah, here it is. In 2005, my friend Nick Niles was president of Sporting News. We were talking baseball one day, and I mentioned Ty Cobb's request. He managed to find the old issue in the company archives and gave me a copy of Cobb's article and permission to use it in Sincerely, Ty Cobb. I read it with interest, and then I wrote a letter answering the questions as best I could 50 years late. When I wrote the letter, I thought it would be amusing to use an old typewriter typeface, one that would duplicate the type on a typewriter my father had in 1955. And interestingly enough, I still have an old royal typewriter in a closet, but it doesn't have anything to do with this one. It has to do with the fact that this was my friend Bernice Abbott's old typewriter that she wrote all of her things on. And we had a, and it still may happen, I don't know, the man who published many of the Abbott books that I wrote wanted to start a small museum within his publishing complex in Germany where we would have Bernice's typewriter, some of her cameras, some of the artifacts, some of her inventions, some of her photographs. And um, so I've saved that old typewriter. It's, it's missing the top of one key, but it's the um, typewriter on which she wrote all of her things about photographers like At Jay or Lisette Modell or whoever. And so we'll, we'll see how that works out. But it, it's fun to talk about this because I, I did this 
I mean, the book only came out recently, but I wrote most of it so long ago. You haven't lost it, Hank. Your fastball's pretty swift as you reply to Ty Cobb all these years later. What else did you say? I can come up with, uh, I feel you were undoubtedly a rough-and-tumble guy, a man with serious psychological damage. No kidding. I mean, his father, I think it what, what was it, his father shot his mother or something terrible. Uh, a large ego and probably a persecution complex. Yet you also had extraordinary athletic ability and perhaps equally important were highly intelligent. Your own psyche may have been damaged, but that didn't keep you from being a profoundly psychological baseball player, perhaps the first who used it so profoundly. True. And it goes on and on. (laughs) My God, I wrote all this stuff. And here's about Home Run Baker. And and I look at this. I even had it so much so that some of the type font you remember how on old typewriters the, the circular things would get clogged with, with gook? Some of these are clogged with gook. <laughs> and how does it end? It says, my God, it's two, four, six, six and a half pages long. <laughs> we had a lot to say. 50 years is a long time. It just goes on and on. But that's funny. But a couple of the things in here are probably not so stupid. Do you remember when you got the idea? Finally, okay, this will be the time when I answer at last. Did it give you a sense of what they call completion? Well, I I just thought completion only in the sense that it was a good way, I thought, to complete the book. Because, you see, this was not part of the original version that I was going to give to Ms. Onassis. It's fun to talk about this because I, I did this. I mean, the book only came out recently, but I wrote most of it so long ago. I mean, this was obvious. I wrote it in 2005. It's interesting because this is the second. TCU is being very nice to me. They put out the thing about my parents. They have put out the thing about Ty Cobb, and they have just agreed to put out a third one, which will cover, it's going to be called More Than the Music, and it's about 20 musicians and and, and five non-playing people who uh, are involved with the music business, who made a difference in my life. But, I mean, it'll be Dizzy Gillespie and Dave Brubeck and and people like that who are famous and well-known, but people who are not well-known like Jabbo Smith. Jabbo was just incredible until he he found the demon rum and (laughs) sort of had a a few issues. So that, it's sort of, memoir time, as it says here, a baseball memoir. Well, this other one is going to be a musical one, and um, we'll see how it works out. Hank O'Neill, writer, photographer, and jazz producer, speaking about his engaging baseball story, Sincerely Ty Cobb, a baseball memoir by Hank O'Neill, that's the full title, issued by TCU Press recounting his correspondence as a lad with baseball great Ty Cobb. Hank O'Neill, for many years, divided his time between New York City and the Poconos, and we had a chance to speak with him when he was actually here at the WVIA studios not too long ago, reviewing the archives of Chiaroscuro Records, which he co-owned with Andrew Sordoni, and which they donated to WVIA, and for which we're very grateful. 
For more information on Sincerely Ty Cobb, a baseball memoir by Hank O'Neill, you can go to the website of TCU Press. So that's prs.tcu.edu, prs.tcu.edu. Sincerely, Ty Cobb, a baseball memoir by Hank O'Neill. And O'Neill is spelled O-apostrophe-N-E-A-L, O-apostrophe-N-E-A-L.